Our sermon today comes from the Oasis Church in Wysox, Pennsylvania, from a Sunday morning gathering and is titled, Another Jesus. Let's get to the word today. I'll meet you in 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. I want to begin by saying that I'm fond of saying that I'm right about Jesus. What I mean by that is not that I assume that I'm right about how he looked, how he walked, how he talked, um, the version of Jesus. I'm right as far as my faith is concerned about the fact that Jesus is the express image of God and Jesus raised from the dead. If, if you don't feel right about that, how can you follow Jesus? I'm right about Jesus. I might be wrong about a lot of things in life, and I might be wrong about a lot of things in the Bible and in my theology, but I'm right that Jesus is alive because I've encountered him and I daily encounter him. So Christ is alive and well. He's not just a historical figure. He's a, a living being who lives in us. I believe Christ is in us, and he's the hope of the goodness of God, the glory of God. All that is good about God is in Christ, and Christ is in us. That's a beautiful thing. I'm right about Jesus. I like to say it. I'm right about Jesus in that regard. I might be wrong about how I see him. I might be wrong about my interpretations of him, but I'm going to land as close as I can in my journey, as close as I can, I reemphasize that, to the Jesus I see in the Bible and to the Jesus I see in the heart of God and the God I see in the heart of Jesus. Those two things go together. But I'm, I know that I'm susceptible to building a Jesus in my image instead of me being built into Jesus. And I know I'm open to it because I'm human. I I started with that today. And being human, I know I'm open to creating a Jesus that looks like I want him to look, that's clothed the way I want him to be clothed, that moves the way I want him to move, that talks the way I want him to talk, that has the skin color I want him to have, that has the hair length I want him to have, that has the, the sound of his voice that I want him to have. I know I'm susceptible, and I know I can't help it, and some of it happens automatically. He just looks a lot like something in my head, sounds a lot like something in my head. It doesn't make it right or wrong. My faith for my salvation is not in that. But when that starts to take the place of the Jesus that's revealed to me in the word, then I've created an idol. And I'm dangerously susceptible to following off that path of the, the risen Christ onto the path of this Jesus that might take me somewhere into my own ruin, might take me somewhere into my own death. Part of why we have this gathering on Sunday morning, the church, part of why we have that gathering is so that we don't create alternate Jesuses that we chase during the week so that when we come together, we hear about the crucified, resurrected Christ and we get to see him in action in you and you and you and you and you so that I'm not an island, but I'm part of a group and then I become responsible to that group. I'm responsible to love them, to listen to them, to care for them. And this is the one we don't often see or say, I'm responsible to see Jesus in their eyes. Because if I can see Jesus in their eyes, then that can shatter some of the preconceived ideas I had this week about Jesus. Because Jesus looks differently in you and you and you and you. And that confronts the Jesus I'm creating. 
And we're in a polarized society where we don't like to be confronted about anything that we believe in. If we believe it strongly enough, we bring a bunch of people around our ideology that we listen to, that we watch, that reinforce that ideology, to where when we hear a different idea, the different idea must be of the devil. And, and then there's nothing that can shake us out of that place. That's the beauty of church. That's the ecclesia. That's all of us called out of various walks of life, different ages, different cultures, different times, different places, different backgrounds, forced, it's, it's, it's a tough word, but that's the one I got right now, forced into the same setting. Like we're, we're here rallying around that Jesus. And so as he becomes, as his expression comes out in you and you and you and you, I'm confronted with the Jesus I see in you that might challenge the Jesus I see in me or the Jesus that I have created. All of that said, that is the careful tension of following the risen Christ. We don't have video of Jesus, so we don't know what he looked like. You know, that's probably a really good thing. Because I think if we did, we would assume that his hairstyle is the godly hairstyle, and his beard is the godly beard, and his height is the perfect height, and his body mass index is the perfect body. You know, we, we, that's, that's, our, that's our way. Like, we would create an idol out of the picture of the physical Jesus, and so thank God we don't have that. We, we, we do have the image we see of Christ in the Gospels. We do have the image we see of Christ in the Epistles. And we do have the image we see of Christ in Revelation. And those images have different angles, you know, different sides, different... They hit the light. The light hits each side of it a little differently. The shadow falls in a different place. But it always falls in the place of love. Because God is love. You know, it, it, the shadow has to fall into the place of love. And where it isn't falling into the place of love, it's my reading of it. This is why I started with my Jesus. It's my reading of it that has forced the shadow to fall somewhere else. Because God is love. That's the center pole. The Jesus that comes out of God, that goes back to God, that is God. Can we be in agreement on that? That Jesus is God. The Jesus that is God must be what his Father is. God has loved us. Jesus has loved us. Where the shades of Jesus that fall throughout the Bible fall, they have to fall on God as love. Otherwise, you have a Jesus that's not God. You have a Jesus that doesn't look like God, think like God, act like God, talk like God, and therefore a Jesus not worth following. And so confronting that Jesus is the goal of Paul in 2 Corinthians 11. Top of the chapter, I want to start by saying what Paul says, bear with me, in a little folly. Some of your translations say, bear with me in a little foolishness. I, I always felt like this was one of the most interesting chapter opening. I know Paul didn't break it into chapters. Let me start there. Paul's just writing. But in the last part of 2 Corinthians, he feels the need to confront some of the apostles that the Corinthian church are accepting and he feels kind of silly doing it. If you read the, and please don't do this now or you won't listen. Don't read the entire 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians right now, but please do this on your own time. If you read it carefully and you read it slowly, Paul apologizes over and over for what he thinks is kind of a silly chapter. He's like, I know I shouldn't be this way, but I'm kind of this way. I'm a little jealous. He's even going to use that phrase at the top of the chapter. I'm a little jealous. I'm a little bothered by some of the people you guys like to listen to. 
And I just want to let you know that I'm as good as they are. <laughs> I'm, 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 in, I'm in this chapter. I'm as good as they are. He even says this. I'm not trained to speak as well as they do. But I'm as good as they are. And, and, and just in case you don't know it, I'm, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm from Abraham. I've gotten beat. I've gotten shipwrecked. I fasted a bunch. People don't like me. Uh, I'm always in trouble. He goes, I'm doing all of this because I love you. It's, just, it's, it's kind of a silly, it's a little childish, but just typical of the brilliance of the anointing of Paul that in the middle of this silliness, he drops what is probably the only real theological nugget of 2 Corinthians 11, and what a nugget it is. So let's read it right out of the gate. Oh, that you would bear with me, verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, in a little foolishness. Indeed, you do bear with me, for I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I've betrothed you to one husband. The next three verses, uh, 2, 3, 4 absolute gem of theology by Paul. I've betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Before I read three and four, let me deal with this for just a second. He's talking specifically to Corinth, but not only. How do I know? Look at verse 28. Besides other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So inside the same chapter, we deal both with the Corinthian church and all the churches. I'd like to include Oasis. I, Paul doesn't know you exist, but that's okay because he serves the same Christ. You're the same body of Christ. You're just, you're just not in the same body. You're just not in the same room, but you're part of the same body across time. So Paul's concern for the Corinthian church, the early part of the chapter, is his concern for all the churches across all the chapters. And so we put ourselves into this story. That sort of gives us sanction in this moment to take whatever Paul's concerned about in the first century and be concerned about it in the 21st century. And Paul wants them to know that he has presented them as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul uses a wedding betrothal ceremony as an illustration, simply a metaphor. There's never actually a moment in the New Testament where the Bible specifically says the church is the bride of Christ. We don't have that sentence. The church is the bride of Christ. What we do have is metaphoric language through the Apostle Paul and through John's revelation. Okay, so Paul says he presents the church as a chaste virgin. That's, that's wedding talk. I present you as this unsullied, pure bride to your heavenly husband so that you can produce, so that you can bring forth offspring, okay, with your heavenly husband. He also uses it to great length in Ephesians 5 in his famous, husbands love your wives as you love yourselves. No man hates his own body. Love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself, you know, washes her off the water of the word. All that great stuff we use in marriage seminars, but it's really an allegory for Christ and his church, even more so than husbands and wives, that famous fifth chapter of Ephesians. And then you get to Revelation. And at the end of the Bible, the angel looks at John and says, would you like to see the Lamb's bride? And John says, I'd like to see the Lamb's bride. And he shows him a city come down out of heaven, the New Jerusalem. And in Revelation, the Lamb's bride is a city. And you get confused and go, well, I thought the Lamb's bride was the body of Christ. And until you remember that Jesus calls his church, the city set on the hill, it cannot be hid. And so you realize that what you're seeing is that embodiment, embody the body of Christ, the embodiment of who God is in the New Jerusalem. And so that's the bride. 
And so when we talk about then the church, we're not just talking about structures, organizations, and buildings. We're talking about the body of Christ, hands, feet, arms, eyes, ears, but we're talking about the bride of Christ. Because we're talking about the bride of Christ, we ought to speak carefully. We ought to parse our words wisely. Because you always need to be careful how you talk about another man's wife. It's a good piece of advice for life, right? It's also a really good piece of advice in the spirit. So before you spot what's wrong with all the churches in your community, which is a really fun game, I say this because I've been in church my entire life, and a really fun game is to be the right church. Right? It's to be in the right church, to know that you found the right church that's preaching the right message, that's preaching the correct message, and then to be able to spot what's wrong with those heathens down the street that think they know God. (laughs) And so be careful, because again, there's going to be a tension in this. There's a tension in knowing I'm following Jesus And I don't want to be distracted into following a version of Jesus. It's not Jesus. And i got to be cognizant of that. But I also am talking about another man's bride. I'm talking about the church. And so spotting truth is essential for my journey. But I'm not the high sheriff of the church. So I'm not allowed to go around and spot who's right, who's wrong. They need to shut that thing down. That's full of false doctrine. That ministry leads you to hell. It's not my job. And so in all of Paul's folly, and 2 Corinthians 11 is full of kind of foolishness, in all of it, he never names names. He never says, so-and-so, 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 stop listening to them, they're a bunch of devils. But he does spot problems with the Jesus that's springing up. And that's what we get to do. So I'm I'm not wise enough to tell God what he ought to do with the version of his spouse that's meeting across the road. I'm not wise enough to, to, to tell. It would be in some ways like me telling a man in this room what I don't like about his wife, which is a pretty stupid thing for me to do, right? Okay, so I try to remind myself of that in ministry a lot. You're speaking to the bride of Christ. Step carefully. handle her with care. Treat her like you want to treat your own wife. Like, speak gently. Speak beautifully. Wash her off. Make her pretty. (laughs) And where you have something negative to say, you better think ten times before you say it. Right? Whether it's your wife or mine. Are we all on the same page? So Paul knows he's being foolish, and maybe that's why he does it being foolish. Because he knows it's a little folly to do this, but let's do it properly. Verse 3, I fear. This is the only time that I can see and I, that, that Paul, that we know it's Paul, this is the only time in Paul's epistles where he admits to being afraid of something. And so fear within itself as an adjective, is not of the devil. Okay, sometimes it's proper fear. There's improper fear that runs you away from the perfect love of God. And there's the proper fear that makes you look for the right Jesus, lest you be deceived. I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. 
Paul's fear is he uses as an illustration the story of the snake with Eve in the Garden of Eden, thus reinforcing his original allegory that the church is the bride of Christ. And so what Paul does then is take a biblical bride the first bride, Eve, and make her the church for allegorical purposes. He makes the church the first woman because in Paul's theology, the church is the first woman. Christ is the first man. Christ is the last Adam. Christ is the new man on the earth, and the church is the, is the new woman on the earth. The church is the new bride, that which will birth a generation, that which will birth a new world, that which births out the kingdom through our, not just through having babies, <laughs> But by producing discipleship and disciples of Christ, we become the bride of Christ. And so Paul takes Eve. Well, what's Eve's claim to fame in the scriptures? Unfortunately, Paul grabs that one and says, as she was deceived by the serpent, I'm afraid that you will be deceived as well. So Paul, pitching the church as the new Eve, pitches the deception as the new snake. But what's the deception? And then he names it in verse 4. For he who comes preaches, if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom you've not preached, who we've not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you've not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. The New King James puts an exclamation point at the end of that verse. That was not in the Greek, by the way. They didn't have exclamation points and question marks and periods and commas, but not a bad move by the translators. It's Paul kind of going, you know what shocks me is that you would move away from the simplicity of Christ and be deceived into another Jesus. Now, let me just point of order. Simple and simplicity are two different things, okay? Um, simplicity is lacking of pretense, Simplicity is a quality. Jesus lacks pretense. What you see is what you get. That's the quality of who he is. He dwells in simplicity, the simplicity of his Father's love. Don't make it too complex. God loves you. Don't muddy the waters theologically. Christ has died for you. Simplicity. Simple means ordinary or easy. But simple is an action. It's simple to do. It's simple to understand. Okay? We're not talking about whether you can comprehend or not. This isn't an action on your part. This is the quality of who Jesus is. The simplicity of Christ. Don't make him simple just because he lives in simplicity. All right? Don't make it, don't, he's not shallow because he lives in simplicity. He's not simple He's not small, he's not insignificant, he's not overlooked, but his simplicity is not complex for you to grasp. He loves you, he died for you, he lives, he can live in you. Simplicity of Christ should never be ignored for theological complexities. You can be smart, you can know Hebrew, you can know Greek, you can parse words, but you can make Christ so complex that no one can encounter him because it becomes so difficult to know him. Because you got to know how to parse and conjugate Greek verbs to figure out if that verse means what it means. But there's a simplicity in knowing that Jesus is alive. And that's what Paul starts with. And says that the deception by the serpent, and the serpent takes many forms in the word, but most often we see him as the devil. Most often we see him as Satan, right? Even all the way up to the book of Revelation, he's actually called that old serpent, the devil. And 
that isn't something that attacks people outside the church as much as it attacks people inside the church. Notice it's the bride that Paul's most afraid will be susceptible to Satan. We often think that sinners out there in the world are all Satanists in their own way, sort of living for the devil. No sinner thinks of it in terms of living for the devil. But I think the greatest attack by the Satan, the adversary, is against the Eve, the body of Christ, for deceptive purposes, to present to us that which is no longer the simplicity of the love of God, or to present to us another Jesus. So that brings me to the phrase in verse 4 that is my title today, if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or a different spirit or a different gospel, you may well put up with it. Let's talk about another Jesus. We've got two solutions, as far as I can see it this morning, to figuring out what Paul means by another Jesus. Number one is we can go through all of Paul's epistles and list off every time he talks about Jesus, and then the opposite of that would be another Jesus. Don't worry. We don't have that kind of time. Paul writes two-thirds of the New Testament. He talks about Jesus a lot. In fact, it's his centerpiece. Everything Paul does Bring you back to Jesus. Bring you back to Jesus. You want to learn how to preach from a guy that didn't think he was a good public speaker? That's okay. Bring it back to Jesus. That's Paul's MO. Now, no time for that. I'm not even going to give you an example. All right? You just go home, read Paul, what he says about Christ. If it doesn't look like that, maybe that's what Paul meant by another Jesus. There's a second way that's far easier, that's also sort of a hermeneutical key in how we should study the Bible, and that is if you see a verse and you don't understand it. You may never understand it, and that's okay, because you're not a disciple of verses. You're in the simplicity of the love of Christ, okay? You don't have to understand the Bible to be a follower of Jesus. Aren't you glad about that? Man, I'm glad about that, because there's a lot about the Bible I don't understand, but I love Jesus, and I know he loves me, and that's the simplicity of my discipleship. Now, I love to read it. I love to discover things, and I love to see things and learn things, and so what I've learned is if I see a verse I don't know, good way to answer it is when people ask about it is to say, I don't know. You don't make up something because you think you got to have an answer. Uh, That's pride. And it's also called a lie because you don't really know. You just made something up. So saying I don't know is way better than saying, "Mm, you know, I got four opinions and then making them up as you go. Um, So if you you get one, you don't understand it. That's okay. Say, I don't know. But here's another idea. They don't exist in a vacuum. Rarely. Most of the only scriptures that I see in the, in the Bible that exist in a vacuum is the book of Proverbs, but even they are supported outside that they may not be supported by the next verse because sometimes it's just proverb, proverb, proverb. They don't, they don't link. It's just proverbial. But most of the Bible is a narrative. So if you see a verse you don't understand, read the next one. Read the next one. Read the next one. Or go in reverse. Rewind five verses and read your way in. Don't stop. Read your way out. Because if you do that, you're going to realize that this is a big letter. And you're not just reading a sentence in paragraph four. You're reading the first three paragraphs and the last four paragraphs. You go, oh, okay, I know what he meant by that because I read the end. It's like watching a movie and you stop halfway and then tell people what the movie was about. And they go, you didn't make it to the end? I mean, the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. That's a statement people make about, hey, don't tell people how the movie ends, which basically because you got to see it or you won't know what happens in the movie. Same thing with Scripture. In much of the same way, you see the Scripture, read the next one. So 
I'm going to save you some time, all right? And I'm going to save me some time. Paul says, he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached. If we were to read on and find out what that other Jesus looks like, I think we can find it in verse, starting in verse 16. And Paul once again qualifies his foolishness. I say again, let no one think me a fool. He's really worried about this. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast of it. So if I'm foolish, just accept me anyway. I'm a lovable fool. Right? I mean, if I'm foolish, you got to love me. I'm a lovable fool. What I'm speaking, I don't speak according to the Lord, but as it were, foolishly, in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast, for you guys are putting up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise, exclamation point, heavy on the sarcasm. You catch that verse. You guys will put up with fools gladly. That's why I'm going to be a fool, because a lot of the people you guys are watching are fools. So obviously you like fools, let me be a fool too. This is some interesting preaching by Paul, who's already admitted he's not a good public speaker, but feels like he's a pretty good writer. He goes, you, you want to put up with fools? I'll be a fool, maybe you'll put up with me. Here's the kind of fools you're putting up with. Verse 19, you put, you, 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 you put up with fools gladly. Verse 20, sorry. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face to our shame, I say, that we're too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I'm bold also. And then Paul goes into, are they Hebrews? Are they this? Are they that? So am I. I want to dwell on verse 20 because I think right here Paul gives the definition of another Jesus. Let's go through it one more time. Here's what you guys are putting up with. They bring you into bondage, they devour you, they take from you, they exalt themselves, and they strike you on the face. What Paul's afraid of at the beginning of the chapter is that people are coming and preaching another Jesus. In verse 20, he tells the Corinthian church what they've been putting up with, which tells me that Paul's version of another Jesus can be found in the 20th verse by a Jesus that brings you into bondage, devours you, takes from you, exalts self, and strikes you on the face. So, what does another Jesus look like? Another Jesus would bring you into bondage. So if the Jesus you hear slowly but surely puts shackles on you to where service is more important than sonship, maybe you're being put into bondage by another Jesus. I mean, earlier in the chapter, Paul said Satan can transform himself into an angel of light, so no wonder you're listening to these guys. In other words, it looks like Jesus, but when you scratch beneath the surface, it's putting you in bondage. You keep listening to it, amening it, copying it, living according to it, and the shackles are going onto your hands and your feet, and you're no longer free. You used to have liberty, but now you don't have liberty. Now you're being told what to do, how to live, where to go, how to give, how much to give, what, what, uh, it's, it's a constant list of regulations and rules until there's no liberty in your own life. And that is the first sign in Paul's gospel that you're watching another Jesus. So do a liberty check. And where there's less freedom and less liberty, maybe you're listening to another Jesus. 
I'm not bad-mouthing another man's bride. I'm not hitting other churches. I'm not hitting other ministries. I'm trying to follow the, clue, the cues of, a, of another fool. Yeah, it's foolish to talk like this. Yeah, it, 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 maybe it's foolish to go down this road, but Paul knew that sometimes you got to go down foolish roads to cover foolish things, like leaving the simplicity of the beauty of the love of God and the freedom of Jesus. Why would anybody ever do that? We shouldn't have to talk about that. And yet he knew that we need to talk about it because he knew that people would be put into bondage. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. So do not be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. Do not go back into the bondage. And that isn't just sin, but of course it is as well. Who would ever meet Jesus and want to go back into the bondage of sin? How could you ever be free in Christ and think you had it so good living somewhere else? If you thought you had it so good living somewhere else, go live somewhere else. I mean, if, if it was better not living for Christ than living for Christ, then don't live for Christ. I, 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 know, I know that's not popular to say, but I can't. And we, we get accused in grace so much of telling people sin's okay, and I'm like, were you, were you that happy? Living without Christ? Well, if you were that happy, that free, why'd you come to Jesus? What did Jesus offer you? And so if that appeals to you, I guess go Scratch that itch. Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. He'll walk into hell with you. You're probably going to be super uncomfortable now because the Holy Spirit walks into the room with you and things feel differently now that you're accompanied by the accompaniment. Okay? That's just a warning for when you want to go spin your wheels because spinning them is what you will do, finding no traction because you're supposed to be a child of the king. But I'm, I'm not even talking about sin as we define it, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about losing my liberty in Christ, my freedom in Christ. And if I'm losing it, then maybe I'm listening to another Jesus. Here's what else Paul says. They devour you. I want to put devour you and takes from you together because it sounds very much like John 10.10. 10. The thief comes not but to steal, to kill, and to destroy but I have come, Jesus said, that you might have life and that you might have it more abundant. And as you know, and I know you know, the thief that Jesus talks about in John 10 is not just the devil, not just the entity called Satan, but everyone that came before Jesus that tried to give you a way in that wasn't Jesus. And now everyone that tries to give you a way in that isn't Jesus is thieving you and robbing you and destroying you. I think that we live in such a market economy that it's filtered itself over into the Christian church to the point that we see people as numbers and dollar signs almost automatically. And we're taught to do that in business. We're taught to do that at work. And so people become commodities. And the unfortunate part about that is that people are not numbers and they're not commodities. They are sheep in, care, in the hands of a good shepherd. So Christ doesn't look at you as a commodity, and the church should neither. Now, I know you're in a place here that does not. You have a good under-shepherd who doesn't view you as a dollar sign, who doesn't see you as an opportunity to give. And I listened carefully today. You were not squeezed. You were not milked. You were not beat for giving. You weren't told that there was an amount you were supposed to give. You weren't told there was a percentage. You were even released into, if this isn't your place, give to where you're fed. I, I love that because... Give into the storehouse the feed bag you're feeding out of. Give. If you want more seed there, give. And so how do we give under grace? We give because we're graced. And we're feeding at a place that we want to keep feeding from, and what we don't support eventually goes away. But we don't give out of obligation. So I know you're not in a house that's not getting 
that squeeze. But I'm not just talking about money as well. We, we tend to think in terms of money when we talk about stealing. But sometimes we get our peace stolen from us. We get our joy stolen from us. And we get our hope stolen from us. And we get our dreams stolen from us because we have been given an idea that they're unholy or that God only wants to use us in ministry or that the only way to really be approved of God is to be a missionary or to go into pulpit ministry or to get up here and play an instrument or to teach a class. That's the only way God, that's the economy of God. And, and once again, very quickly, people can become a commodity to build our ministries and to build up our stuff. And because we're a market economy-minded people, we got pastors who spend more time reading books on CEOs and generals and leaders than they do shepherds and gardeners and winemakers. And I, I firmly believe if you want to go into pastoral ministry, don't ever again read a book about a CEO, a president, or a general. Instead, read horticulture and winemaking and gardening because that's what you're doing. You're brushing off plants and you're... you're putting your hands in the dirt, and you're pulling weeds, and you're killing insects, and you're helping people to grow into the fullest version of themselves. You're not building something big. You're not expanding into another campus. You're not trying to make sure you've got X ministry covered with a certain talent and finding every... It isn't your job to build the church. It's your job to love the people, and Christ builds the church. And as you do that and the church builds... It becomes evident who has built you, and it'll, become, it'll be Jesus. It'll be Christ. And so where you're being devoured and where you're being taken from, maybe you're listening to another Jesus. I'm not pointing a finger. Just maybe you're listening to another Jesus. Now, why say this in a church that I know isn't preaching another Jesus? Because more than ever, we're in a world where we're bombarded with every voice. You can have access to anything you want. You can hear and listen to anything you want, and you do, all the time, and you feed on it, and our roots don't always run deep in the Word. Can I, can I get, get a little tough for a second? Our roots don't always run deep in the Word. Our roots don't always run deep in prayer. Our roots don't always run deep in sacrament and meditation on Him, but our roots run pretty deep in our political philosophies our roots run pretty deep in our hobbies. Our roots run pretty deep in our stuff. And, and, and it's not condemnation that we have stuff, but how can we spot the different Jesus when our roots are running so close to the other version? So close that the other version sort of leaks out in our fruit. It kind of leaks out in the way our leaf system is set up because... If you plant a tree next to a source of water, the tree takes on the qualities of the water. And so as the water flows past me of rage and anger and fear, what happens? Eventually, in some category, I'm full of rage. Or maybe I'm not full of it, but it's there. It's on the edge of my leaf. And you can find it if you hit the right button. And man, have I found that you can find it if you hit the right button. <laughs> and I got a button too. And I don't like it. I got a bunch of them. And when you hit it and I go off, that's a me problem, not a you problem. Good piece of advice. Most of the time, it's not a them problem. In some way or the other, it's a you problem. 
you can't change them, <laughs> but you've got a great physician that's changing you, okay? So go to the doctor, right? Go to the horticulture. Go to the specialist. Go to the gardener. Go to the shepherd. Hey, I got a thorn in my leg. Hey, this tree's growing crazy. I don't know what's going on. The leaves look wrong. We got to change the water source. I got to get weeded. I need some bugs dead. I don't know what's going on, but I think I've been feeding on a different Jesus because I'm turning it into a rage monster, and I'm mad at everybody, and I wish the world would burn. And sometimes it manifested, I, I, they're all going to go to hell. I wish Jesus just come back and get it started. Does that sound like Jesus? Not even Jesus prayed that, by the way. Jesus didn't say, Father, I can't wait for you to take me home. This hell hole. Take me home. We'll fix up a bunch of mansions. You can send me back. I'll burn it up. Take the good people back with me. Two more. He exalts himself and he strikes you. Now, Paul's talking about the apostles that are preaching the false Jesus. And so we're not talking about a Jesus that exalts himself. Jesus is already exalted. Jesus need not exalt himself. We've got to re-preach the ascended Christ in the American church. The American church almost says nothing about the ascension. We go from Easter to Pentecost. We ignore the ascension, which is right in between. We don't do anything with it. And that's why a lot of people are distanced from Jesus. They haven't seen that he's ascended into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father and that you have been made to set with him in heavenly places. If we preached the ascended Jesus, we'd have an ascended bride. The bride would know she's ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay, that ascended Jesus is already exalted. Now, we sing like, I exalt thee, which is fine. We exalt him with our praise. But you can't lift him any higher than he's already lifted. He's Christ. He's finished that work. So Paul's not talking about a Jesus that needs exalt. He's talking about ministry that's always exalting ministry. And ministry that's always exalting self. That's always putting self out there. That, that is humble bragging. You ever around humble brag? You are. You're around it all the time. Social media reeks with humble brag. You know, like, I just want to show you what we did. I'm only showing you so you'll know. And then it's, you know, we feed, fed all of these kids, you know. It's, it's the humble brag. We all do it. I, but when it becomes a part of our Jesus, that the way to promote our Jesus is the brag of the ministry, and that's how we can, that's how we promote our Jesus is by promoting self, we might be seeing another Jesus. And I land... That final one on strikes you. Paul actually says they strike you on the face. Now, this is an interesting one because he makes it sound really physical. Like, it makes it sound like you guys are following preachers that actually punch you in the face. Now, I used to think that was just hyperbolic. Paul surely didn't mean that until I've run into ministries and cults where that is a part of Christian discipline. Is literally being physically harmed by ministers as a way of showing you who's in authority. And people actually submit to it because they've been convinced that that's how they're going to subjugate their flesh. Okay, I don't think you needed my 30 seconds on that to tell you you shouldn't sit under that, right? So if you walk in and they go, you know how you're going to grow closer to God is to take a good punch in the mouth. Bye. Right? I'm not signing up for this. Yeah. It's not a weekly punch to the nose so that I get physical discipline. 
So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to imagine that Paul wasn't thinking about getting physically punched, but I do believe Paul's thinking about getting beat up. And this one I'm the most passionate about, and I want to spend the least amount of time on because I'll go crazy with it. But I cannot be more repulsed by what I've watched the church do to my brothers and sisters and beat them up with shame, guilt, and fear. Until people don't want to go to church anymore. They don't want to be in ministry anymore. They don't want to read their Bible anymore. Why it bothers me so much is because I I know I'm right about Jesus. He's alive, and he looks like a loving father, and he's alive inside of my soul. And if I'm right about that, I'm bothered by the Jesus that breaks your leg every time you come to church and socks you in the spiritual nose every time you come before the Father and tells you that it's your fault. That's the Jesus who's the abusive husband or boyfriend that smacks his wife and tells her that if she lived better and performed better, he wouldn't have to do this to her. It's not right in the home, and it's not right in the house of God. You're worth more than to come into the house of God and be knocked down, smacked around, kicked, and beat up. You're worth more to the Father who loves you. And if you're getting kicked and beat up, and I know you're not in here, but shut off the voices that are kicking you and punching you and beating you up and making you feel like trash when God loves you so much, cares for you and has given his son not as a distant entity in heaven waiting to come and take you out of a hell hole, but who lives in the middle of your hell hole with you every day and loves you enough to never walk out on you. And stays there with you, goes through it with you. Bad stuff happens to you, it happens to Jesus. Walks through it with you, holds your hand, says, yes, bad things happen to us. But bad things happen to us. Bad things don't happen to you. Bad things happen to us. I suffered this on Calvary so that I could show you there can be a resurrection out of this. Yes, you have a problem today. Yes, you're getting beat up today. But there is a Sunday coming. The stone's going to roll away on a brand new you. There's a promise for you tomorrow. There's hope for you. God, we need to hear that when we come to the house of God. That there's hope for you tomorrow. There's a promise for you tomorrow. There's a chance for you tomorrow. Not if you jump through hoops, jump high enough, pay enough, do enough. But just believe in the one who's done it all on your behalf. And let him go to work living this out of your life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 to the same church one letter earlier. Paul said, let no man put another foundation than that which has been laid, which is Christ Jesus. And let you know that whatever you build upon that foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, three good ones, three bad ones. I think Paul nails it because we're probably half and half. I got some gold and some silver and some precious stones in my salvation. I got some wood, hay, and stubble in here. And Paul says, it's all going to burn with fire. How many of you know God is a consuming fire? How many of you know the fire that's coming is not for those out in sin? The fire that's coming starts in the house of God. It's in you. It went in you. Jesus is the baptizer with the Holy Ghost and with fire. His fan is in his hand, and he's thoroughly purging his floor, and he's gathering the wheat into the barn. He's burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's in you. That's not in a good Pentecostal church service only. That's in you. It's in some good Pentecostal church service. I've been in some. Some good fire burns some stuff out. But it's in you. So what's that fire doing? Paul says the fire will burn. And wherever there's gold, 
silver and precious stones, they survive. And wherever there's wood, hay, and stubble, it burns up. And you go home and read this, 1 Corinthians 3.15. But his soul shall be saved by fire. The fire's work, the real Jesus is always fanning the flame of the Holy Spirit over your life. But not to beat you up, it's to walk you through the fire, to burn out of you what doesn't belong so that your soul is saved in the middle of the fire. So that on the other side, like, like the Son of God with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's a fourth man in the fire. He's always in there with you. And the only thing that burns up are the shackles that put you in the furnace in the first place. Everything else survives. What needs to survive will survive. What doesn't need to survive won't survive. And that's the prayer for the bride of Christ. Watch out for the other Jesus. You'll spot him if you brought into bondage. He eats you up. He steals your stuff. People are exalted in front of him, and he keeps beating you to death. You've been introduced to another Jesus. Your Jesus won't do any of those things. Keep this as a reference verse for yourself, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty. When you hear something that's a little twingy, just go back to that verse and go, did I see that in there? Okay, I've not got to go on the war path against that church and start a rally that they need shut down. I'm just not going to listen to that Jesus. I'm not going to touch the other man's, another man's bride. Christ can burn his own fire in that place. I don't truck grenades from the parking lot. I'm not out here Molotov cocktailing every ministry I don't agree with. I'll let the Holy Ghost do his fire. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to do it. I'll let him do it. I'm not very good at burning stuff. I burn stuff. I burn the whole thing down. He burns. He knows exactly what to burn, exactly what needs to survive. I'm in a house full of people who've been persuaded by Jesus today. If on the chance you haven't been persuaded by Jesus today, I invite you to begin to investigate the one who never brings you into bondage, who's not out to devour you, who's not out to steal from you, who's not out to exalt self above himself, who's not here to beat you up. The Jesus who loves you, the Jesus who died for you, the Jesus who raised from the dead for you. He's not asking you to do a bunch of stuff for him. He's asking you to believe in him and let him go to work for you. And as he goes to work in your life, the process of transformation begins in Christ, continues through the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you bow your heads? I just want to say a, a quick prayer. Part of this prayer is going to be that we see the Jesus that is shown to us in the resurrection and that we take our eyes off of the other versions of Jesus. And I didn't name names. You don't have to. You don't have to get up here and name doctrines and churches and ministries. You just show the real Jesus, and you show what a false Jesus would look like, and it's going to become easy for you to spot the real Jesus. Father, that's what we pray today. Begin the work of spotting the real Jesus. And whenever we come up against another Jesus, one that beats us, steals our joy, devours our hopes and dreams, kicks us, brings us into slavery to some system. We'll know it. We'll spot it, and we'll shut our ears to it, and we'll take Jesus serious when he says, be careful how you hear. And we'll pay attention to the fire that burns up the wood, hay, and stubble, and we'll push our wood, hay, and stubble towards that fire. And we'll follow that Jesus. Thank you for that that begins today. And now, Lord, I pray for Oasis. We have found a new pocket of believers that are our friends, that are our family. I pray for this church and its place in this community. 
I pray that you will bless it, that you will prosper it. And I pray that as Jesus is lifted, as I know you've gifted this pastor to do, I pray that as he lifts Jesus, this community will be drawn to the Jesus they see who doesn't beat them, who doesn't devour them, who doesn't steal from them, who doesn't strike them, and they'll fall in love with that Jesus. Bless this pastor. Pour out your peace, your blessing, and your anointing on him. Continue to give him revelations of your love, revelation of your grace, and broaden, Father, the range of his voice in this community. For in this hour, like no other, we need to hear the real Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.